in the afternoon on Monday, December 8th, 1980, John Lennon posed with his wife, Yoko Ono, for a photo shoot with photographer Annie Leibovitz in their flat at the Dakota apartment building at 72nd Street and Central Park West in Manhattan's Upper West Side. Leibovitz was famous for her deeply intimate style of portraiture, which John and Yoko thought would be a perfect way to promote their highly personal new album, Double Fantasy. The result was arguably the most iconic photograph in music history, featuring the former Beatle lying naked on a side on a cream-colored carpet, with his arms and legs enveloping a fully clothed Yoko while she stares passively into the distance. At the same time Leibowitz was taking the photograph, a 25-year-old man named Mark David Chapman stood outside the Dakota with a group of fans hoping to get an autograph. Chapman held a copy of Double Fantasy in one hand and his favorite book, The Catcher in the Rye, in the other. He had a 38 caliber pistol tucked into his waistband. Chapman had been obsessed with Lennon for years. He immersed himself in Lennon's music, writings, and life story, collected memorabilia, and visited places associated with the singer. At some point in the months before he came to New York, however, Chapman's obsession transformed, first into resentment for Lennon's fame, and then into anger for what he perceived as Lennon's hypocrisy for preaching love and equality while at the same time living a life of wealth and opulence. Later that afternoon, after the photo shoot ended, the group of fans, including Chapman, got what they'd hoped for. John and Yoko emerged from the building and agreed to sign a few autographs. Chapman handed Lennon the Double Fantasy album, which the singer signed with the words, John Lennon, 1980. Chapman then watched as John and Yoko got into an awaiting car and were driven away. The crowd dispersed, but Chapman remained where he was, waiting for Lennon to return. John and Yoko spent the next four hours at the Record Plant Studio on 44th Street, working on Yoko's newest single called Walking on Thin Ice, and then returned to the Dakota at 10.50 p.m. The fans were gone. Lennon and Ono walked through an open exterior gates of the Dakota and into an outdoor vestibule. As Lennon approached the door that would lead them into the building, Chapman emerged from the shadows with his revolver in his hand and yelled, Mr. Lennon! As the singer turned, Chapman fired four shots. Each struck Lennon in the chest. Two police officers stationed nearby heard the gunshots and rushed to the scene. They found Lennon lying face down in a pool of blood with Ono tending to him and Mark David Chapman leaning against a wall, completely calm, reading The Catcher in the Rye. I'm Jason Beckerman. I'm Derek Kaufman. This is Last Days, John Lennon. The police officers who first arrived at the shooting knew Lennon couldn't wait for an ambulance, so they carried him into the backseat of their patrol car and called ahead to let hospital staff know who the patient was and the gravity of the situation. Witnesses would later describe a frenzy of doctors and nurses rushing around the ER and then hovering over the gurney as it was wheeled into the operating room. Three different doctors would later claim they were the one who opened Lennon's chest to try to save him, and dozens of nurses and staff would all insist they were in the OR that night. When Lennon arrived, he was immediately brought in for surgery. The doctor, whoever he was, cut open Lennon's chest to find his heart stopped and his chest cavity full of blood and immediately began manually squeezing Lennon's heart in an effort to get it pumping again. Chapman, it was later learned, had shot Lennon with hollow point bullets that had pulverized his left lung and left his major blood vessels severely damaged. Three of the four bullets had gone clean through and exited from his upper back, doing catastrophic damage along the way. The fourth lodged in his aorta. For all intents and purposes, John Lennon, just 40 years old, was dead on arrival. Lennon was officially pronounced dead at 11.15 p.m., and a short time later, doctors delivered the news to Yoko in the hospital waiting room. She asked that they not tell the media until she could get home and break the news to their five-year-old son, Sean, who she knew would be up late watching TV, waiting for his parents to come home. 
But a local ABC news producer named Alan Weiss happened to be at the Roosevelt ER that very same night after he was injured in a motorcycle crash. Weiss knew when he saw the frenzy that something big had happened and despite his injuries began working the story. He was quickly able to confirm the gist of what had happened, found a payphone, and called his bosses at the local ABC News affiliate, who in turn alerted ABC News president Rune Arledge. Arledge, who was a legend in the business, knew he had to act right away if he wanted ABC to break the story. But in 1980, long before the advent of the internet or social media, the quickest and only way to do that was to broadcast it on television, and it just so happened that ABC was currently airing the final minutes of the network's most watched show, Monday Night Football. And so Arledge made a couple of phone calls, and this is how millions of Americans first learned of the death of John Lennon. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game, no matter who wins or loses. An unspeakable tragedy confirmed to us by ABC News in New York City. John Lennon, outside of his apartment building on the west side of New York City, the most famous, perhaps, of all of the Beatles, shot twice in the back. This is just an incredible moment, Jason, right? Give me chills listening to it again. I've heard it four or five times this week preparing for the podcast. It still gave me chills. It is because that's real news breaking in the middle. You see the quarterback running out on the field and you hear that unmistakable Howard Cosell voice. It's just one of the most famous calls in history. Despite having not quite nailed down all the facts yet, Howard Cosell's announcement of Lennon's death shocked the world. Within minutes, fans descended on the Dakota and converged on the area of Central Park directly across from the Dakota apartment building. Tens of thousands of people gathered over the next few days to honor the fallen beetle. They burned candles and laid flowers, created handwritten signs expressing their condolences, and they sang his songs over and over again, literally for days. Derek, this is an outpouring of emotion we've never seen. We've covered a lot of deaths, huge deaths. Whitney Houston, Prince, Michael Jackson, obviously. Huge, untimely deaths. Enormous outpourings of support that came from each of them. But I don't think we ever saw anything like this. My question for you is, are we just not as reverent as we once were? Do we not have heroes like we once did? Or was Lennon bigger for some reason? I don't know if he's bigger. I think the news of Lennon's death was earth-shattering because this was not a man who was sick. You think of Elvis's death. He was bloated and sweaty by the end. You think of Michael Jackson, a huge death. Known he was also infirm. in failing health. Right. You knew about some of that stuff. Whitney Houston, the same way with the years and years of drug abuse. Prince was, well, though, similar to that, right? Now, it wasn't, Very an, act, shocking. It wasn't an act of, of violence like here, right? You have... Somebody who's taken away, but not by their own hand, right? Prince, Whitney, Michael Jackson, these people all, in, we understand the circumstances are different for each, but they also, in some way or another, died of addiction, died by their own decisions. This was so out of left field, somebody else, a horrible murder. It's, it's, hard to, it's hard to really compare it to anything else. I mean, obviously, there were music stars who died by being shot later, Tupac, Biggie, people yes. like that. But you always associated them with a certain lifestyle that exposed them to violence. They would rap Fairly about it. Fairly or unfairly, so, it was not right. quite as stunning as this would have been. Right. This was just shocking, an act of violence that took down maybe the most famous musician ever. Yeah, it, it's really, it also marked the end of an era. You have, you know, you know, this happened a month after Ronald Reagan had swept the election in a huge landslide. There was this transformation from the days of Carter, the liberal days of the Beatles and Carter. They were all sort of, uh, you know, birds of the same political flock. And then you have 
And then you have Ronald Reagan coming in. You have an entirely different uh, type of music that's coming along the way. I mean, think about what you ended up with in the early 80s, oh. how different it was than the Beatles style from the 60s and into the 70s with John You're and Paul. 100% right. I mean, attitudes were changing. We think of the 80s as the era of greed and the Reaganomics and so forth, movies like Wall Street. It yeah. was a total shift from the 60s and 70s, the sort of free love atmosphere. But the Beatles, <laughs> I mean, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, and George Harrison were and living they legends. they defined the last yes. 20 years of music, really, in, in so many ways. Yeah, there wasn't. it wasn't so much a passing of the torch. These guys were going to be on the Mount Rushmore themselves. So right, it right. was truly, truly shocking. At the same time Lennon was succumbing to his injuries at Roosevelt Hospital, Mark David Chapman was brought in handcuffs to the 20th Precinct on 100th Street and Amsterdam Avenue. He waived his right to have an attorney present during questioning by police and quickly confessed to the murder, saying, quote, I've been tracking him for a while. I have a big person inside of me and a little person. The big person had been winning up until tonight, but now the little person won. The next morning, December 9th, 1980, he was arraigned on charges of second degree murder and remanded to Bellevue Hospital for psychiatric evaluation. More than a dozen psychologists and psychiatrists interviewed Chapman over the next six months each concluding he suffered from serious psychological disorders, including several diagnoses of paranoid schizophrenia. Nevertheless, court-appointed expert witnesses concluded that, although delusional, Chapman understood the difference between right and wrong and the nature of the criminal charges against him and found that he was competent to stand trial. The judge agreed and set Chapman's trial for the following June. Now, Jason, the lead up to the trial was an absolute circus. This was the murder of one of the most famous musicians ever. Labeled, so. as so many things are, crime of the century. We hear it all the time. There are multiple crimes of the century. But this was going to be a very public trial. As you said, the murder of one of the most famous people in history, certainly one of those famous musicians in history. It was all going to happen maybe on live television the day when this kind of thing was just starting to be televised. It was going to be a huge event, and the whole time leading up to it was one fiasco after another. Yeah, it certainly lived up to it. His court-appointed lawyer quit amid constant death threats, and Chapman himself had to be transferred in the dark of night from Bellevue to Rikers Island because police feared that Lennon fans might storm the hospital. In January 1981, at the urging of his new lawyer, Jonathan Marks, Chapman entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, but a few months later said he wanted to withdraw the insanity plea. Marx objected, telling the judge he had, quote, serious questions about Chapman's competence to make this decision. But Chapman told the court God had told him to plead guilty and that he would not change his plea or ever appeal, regardless of his sentence. The judge in the case eventually acceded to Chapman's wishes and on June 22nd, 1981, allowed him to plead guilty to murdering John Lennon. After the guilty plea is entered, the court schedules a sentencing hearing for two months later at which Chapman was asked if he had anything to say before learning his fate. He rose and read a passage from The Catcher in the Rye. We've already discussed he was holding this book when he shot and killed Lennon, in which in the, in the passage that he reads from, Holden Caulfield is telling his little sister Phoebe that he often imagines himself as a hero. Chapman read in open court from the book, I keep picturing all these little kids playing some game in this big field of rye and all, thousands of little kids, and nobody's around. Nobody big, I mean, except me and I'm standing on the edge of some crazy cliff. What I have to do, I have to catch everybody if they start to go over the cliff. I mean, if they're running and they don't look where they're going, I have to come out of somewhere and catch them. That's all I do all day. I'll be the catcher in the rye and all. The judge listened to this and then sentenced Chapman to 20 years to life in Attica Correctional Facility. Let's take a quick break. This episode of Last Days is sponsored by Article, 
Article's all about beautiful design for every home. And thanks to their online-only model, they have some really great prices, too. Article offers fast, affordable shipping across the U.S. and Canada. Plus, they don't leave you waiting around. You pick the delivery time, and they'll send you updates every step of the way. I actually just ordered a sofa, an indoor sofa, sleeper sofa for my guest room. Very excited about it. And the cool thing is the delivery time. I've never seen it before where when you order online, you pick the delivery date and time, which is awesome. The process is really, really easy. Products look great. I'm excited to let you... Well, I'm excited to sleep at your house. Oh, wow. Okay. Article. <laughs> so Article's offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash TMZ and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash TMZ for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. We're really excited to have Article sponsoring the podcast. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including Ray-Ban, Good American, and Ulta. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals. During Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th, the cashback rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for apparel and electronics, and you can save on everything you need for the summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of Big Give Week's 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Just go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. Rakuten, R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. The responses to Lennon's death from the three surviving Beatles were complex. John had walked away from the band in April 1970, declaring he, quote, wanted a divorce from his bandmates. And they were very hard feelings on all sides. The decade between the breakup and Lennon's death was marked by constant legal fights, financial issues, and personal disagreements between the former friends. Things had thawed a bit over the years between John as it related to George and Ringo, and they apparently chatted occasionally and may have been may have even seen each other from time to time. But Paul McCartney and John never saw eye to eye, and they never saw each other again, and they both still harbor deep resentment towards each other. In a really unfortunate incident, a group of reporters caught up with Paul in London. Derek, you remember seeing this. The night after John was killed, the reporters get him, they sort of corner him, and they ask him for his reaction about John's death. Paul was really dismissive. He was insincere. He was chewing gum loudly as he's answering the question and seemingly intent on showing the world that he was really unbothered by it all. What time did you hear the news? This morning sometime. Very early? Yeah. Yeah. Drag, isn't it? Okay, cheers. I mean, that that line is absolutely shocking it uh, it's a drag isn't it and then he says cheers right to, to to exit which is you know it's a britishism when you leave a setting to say cheers it's a way of saying goodbye but after the he death said so of- cavalierly if you watch the video it's just impossible to take anything away from this except that he really was trying to show that he didn't like John and that he wasn't going to be saddened by his death. Uh, the, the moment really became infamous. I mean, McCartney faced an immediate backlash. Two days later, he was publicly booed on a London street. And and Paul, McCartney, Paul McCartney was a legend, uh, <laughs> right. you know, uh, in his in his own right as a member of the Beatles. Maybe they're, they're the two most important and famous members of the Beatles. He later tried to walk the comment back a bit, saying he was having trouble processing his friend's loss and was caught off guard by the question. But, you know, this video is out there. And when you watch it, you can see he's just clearly unbothered. Uh, He wasn't really caught off guard. If if while he's walking out of the building before the press sort of stops to talk to him, maybe he wasn't expecting it. But 
John Lennon had just been assassinated. He had to know that there was going to be press coverage of his response I'll, and other Beatles' I'll go response. one step further. He knew the reporters were circling outside the building. He walked outside in order to greet the reporters and, and talk to them. It's I think exactly, there's no other way to look at it. And, and look, George and Ringo were also spotted, and they yeah. don't have a moment that right. looks quite like this. Um, you know, he meant what he said in the moment, but was now stunned, obviously, by the public's reaction, and his image took a hit for a number of years. Yet, however unbothered McCartney may have been at the moment of John's death, over the next few months, Paul did begin to struggle deeply with the demise of their relationship and the lost opportunity for reconciliation. Paul's wife, Linda, later said he sobbed over the loss of John. And by 1982, Paul had begun to come to terms with what happened. And he wrote a ballad called Here Today, in which he dealt directly with the complexities of his and John's relationship and the deep affection and tremendous sadness he now felt. And if I said I really knew you well, what would your answer be? Well, knowing you, you'd probably laugh and say that we were worlds apart. If you were here today, but as for me, I still remember how it was before. I confess, I had never heard this Neither song before, uh, but it is classic Paul. He's it is. a brilliant lyricist, a brilliant melodist. I mean, he yeah. just knows how to make a song. I just see this is to, he's a master lyricist, and he's perfectly able to encapsulate, which is what he did his whole career, sort of emotions and feelings into a few words here and there. It's an understated song. It's not over the top. You're not going to get a lot of like cuckoo cuckoo in this thing, right? It's very understated, and it's just sort of perfectly sums it up. And it was something that the public, when I read about the song, had been clamoring for, some sort of reaction publicly from Paul McCartney to talk about his relationship with John. And he finally gave it to him in the song, and it was really brilliant. And I can't imagine why it is that this has escaped both you and I. We're at least passive Beatles fans. And yeah. I, I would have thought that I had heard of this, but same. I you hadn't. know what's particularly poignant? And you know, part of the rift between John and Paul, and, and many people have written about this who are just Beatles scholars, is that John kind of found Paul a little cheesy and a little yeah. lightweight yes. in terms of his talked about yesterday as being a lightweight song, not really respecting it. Yeah. Yes. And even Paul, you know, he wrote it famously yesterday it was just a song called Scrambled Eggs right. that he then put some lyrics over. So he didn't have John never sort of thought he had the depth that John had, and John was the true artist soul, but I listened to that song, and I think John would have liked it. I think yeah, it's actually right. a very deep and resonant song. I think that's sort of a beautiful ending. Yeah. But as much as John's bandmates and the public mourn John's loss, no one suffered as deeply as Yoko Ono. First, from the trauma caused by the murder of her husband, he died in her arms, and then from the brutal treatment from fans and some in the media, those who blamed Yoko for the Beatles' breakup were unrelenting after John's death. In the Anna Leibowitz photo we discussed at the top of the podcast with Yoko staring blankly past an enraptured John, which was published on the cover of Rolling Stones just six weeks after John's death, cemented for many the perception of her as a calculating interloper who exploited John's fame for her own advantage. Not helping matters was the revelation that John amended his will after linking up with Yoko to largely exclude his oldest son, Julian, who was the product of John's prior marriage, in favor of giving nearly everything to Yoko and their child, Sean. But regardless of any of this, by every account, Yoko was absolutely shattered when John died. The doctor at the Roosevelt Hospital who broke the news to Yoko said she collapsed on the ground and started smashing her head against the concrete floor in despair. And sources close to Yoko confirm she has lived with a profound sense of loss and sadness from which she has never fully recovered. 
She's never married again, and she has frequently and publicly honored her late husband and has continued his legacy of human rights activism. Look, you were right to point this out. Yoko Ono is a controversial figure. Yep. There's no doubt about it. Her her involvement with the Beatles at their late stage before the band broke up, many have attributed their demise to her unfairly in large part. I mean, the band broke up because they moved on artistically. But what you cannot doubt is that she is absolutely devoted. I mean, yep. all accounts of Yoko and John's relationship were that they were obsessed with each yeah. other. It wasn't just this spider woman coming in and stealing John from the Beatles. They had something magical and she's been shattered. But if you go back and you read moment. the op-eds in the wake of his death, uh, a few days out, a few weeks out, they are brutal towards her. I mean, just just really laying his death at her feet and talking about in a different sort of sliding door moment how, you know, this never would have happened and had he lived a life that was more consistent with, you know, a wind down of the Beatles as opposed to this abrupt breach that they assigned to her, you know, it just would have been different. It's, it's sad and fortunate. It is. Well, you've brought up the sliding doors moment. Yeah. So it's that point in our podcast. How do you do a counterfactual about John Lennon? Obviously, the Beatles had run their course. The Beatles had been broken up for a decade when he was assassinated. Yeah. So there's no more sort of and there was no chance of a reconciliation or a reunion. I do think as time passed, it would be nice if all the Beatles were available for like a reunion tour. They probably would have done it, right? Everybody they would have done it in their 60s and 70s. They right. Some sentimental. Yeah. But that would have been sad in its own way to see them <laughs> right. trying to bang out. I want right. to hold your hand. But, you know, he was 40 years old, which, you know, you and I are of Past a certain that. age. That, that seems young now. <laughs> yeah, it seems yeah. like you still have a lot of life left to live. And there's every reason to believe that he was going to continue as one of the most prolific and important musical artists in the world. In just the 10 years since the Beatles broke up, he released seven studio albums. He had nine top 10 hits, including four number ones, Whatever Gets You Through the Night, Woman, Starting Over. And of course, what we played at the top of the podcast, his biggest solo hit, Imagine, which is just widely considered to be one of the greatest songs ever a written. Any period. list you see of the great songs ever written, this is going to be at or near the top. Absolutely. I mean, Rolling Stone ranks it the third best song of all time. Right. And they, they they love doing lists and they can make the list very narrow. But that was on the list of the greatest songs, right. period. Not rock and roll songs, right. just songs. And it's also one of the most covered songs. It's got over 200 versions. Madonna has done a version. Stevie Wonder, Joan Baez, Lady Gaga. Gaga, Elton John, and Diana Ross. It's just a beautiful, sturdy song. And he wrote 25 number one hits. I Len mean, Lennon did in his life. 25 John number Lennon, one hits. It's yeah. an incredible um, number of songs in 40 years to hit number one. It's more than anyone other than Paul McCartney, who has 31. But remember, Paul McCartney has lived an extra 43 years. Right. And, and that's a lot more time to add six number ones. Right. Uh, yeah, I got to think there's just every reason to think that Lennon, like McCartney, would have continued to release great music, form different bands. He was obviously in a, the Plastic Ono band with Yoko. And they would have continued to release released great music as they were for the decade before his death. And there's no reason to think he was only 40 that he wouldn't have had a decade or two of, you know, other number ones that he would that he would have written. He's yeah. a brilliant songwriter, maybe the greatest ever. He's brilliant. And and we, we came if you were around, I've seen what Paul McCartney has done. He's done a lot of collaborations. He did a song yeah. with Rihanna. I would just love to have seen the elder statesman John Lennon doing collabs with the biggest artists of the time. Would he have gotten on a track with Taylor Swift, with Drake? I, oh, I don't God, know. I he was not. a little bit more artistic <laughs> and maybe removed, but you got to wonder. Yeah. A few final notes. In the years since his incarceration, Mark David Chapman has given a few interviews in which he has identified his true motivation for killing John Lennon was his own obsession with becoming famous and his jealousy at Lennon's success. He said he came to New York in October 1980, two months before the assassination, with the intent to kill either Lennon or the musician James Taylor, but couldn't work up the nerve to do it. Chapman has requested parole 12 times since he was first eligible in 2000, but all 12 have been denied. 
He is now 68 years old and serving his sentence at the Green Haven Correctional Facility in New York's Hudson Valley. He is again eligible for parole in February 2024. It's coming up. Julian Lennon opened up about his father shortly after his death, calling him a hypocrite for preaching love to the world while simultaneously refusing any relationship with him. Julian said it was especially hurtful to listen to John talk lovingly to the public about his young son, Sean, his son with Yoko, something he had never done with Julian. Julian sued his father's estate in 1996, claiming he was wrongfully excluded from his father's will, later settling in a deal with Yoko for an estimated $35 million. In a 2009 interview, Julian said after years of therapy, he has found a way to release his anger toward his father and Yoko. Paul McCartney has likewise forgiven both John and Yoko for their part in the demise of the Beatles and the ensuing legal battles, although he still expresses sadness for the way things ended between them. In a 2021 interview McCartney did with music producer Rick Rubin, Rubin read a quote by Lennon in which he called McCartney, quote, one of the most innovative bass players of all time and a great, great musician. McCartney, with a, with a real tear in his eye, said he had never heard that quote before and was only sorry Lennon had never said anything like that to him before he died. Yoko Ono is now 90 years old and still lives in the same apartment at the Dakota. Directly across the way in Central Park, Yoko founded the Strawberry Fields Memorial honoring her late husband. The memorial rests in the same spot thousands of fans had once gathered to sing John's song on the fateful night in 1980 when he was killed.